Welcome to Energy Solutions, a podcast from the Electric Power Supply Association. I'm your host, Todd Snitchler, EPSA's president and CEO. The year is winding down. That doesn't really mean a break for power generators and power markets, but it is an opportunity to check in on the key issues facing the grid as we head into 2024. We're closing out 2023 with a special multi-guest episode, checking in on the state of power markets and the top electricity issues around the country, from New England to Texas to California and in between, drawing in the expertise of the nation's top experts on each region. Our guests for this episode include Dan Dolan, President of the New England Power Generators Association, Gavin Donahue, President and CEO of the Independent Power Producers of New York, Scott Miller, Executive Director of the Western Power Trading Forum, Michelle Richmond, Executive Director for the Texas Competitive Power Advocates, Jan Smutney-Jones, Executive Director of the Independent Energy Producers Association, and last but certainly not least, Glenn Thomas, President of the PJM Power Providers Group. We gathered these folks together to talk over what's top of mind, what's similar, and what's different for markets in the states and regions that they cover. What factors are impacting reliability? What market design changes could help the system meet the many new and growing demands that we have for power generation? Can climate goals and new policy priorities be implemented in a cost-effective and reliable way? We also got them to share their predictions for 2024 and beyond, and perhaps most importantly, their favorite holiday movie. So without further ado, here's our conversation. Michelle Richmond, I'm going to start with you today uh, and ask you if you could, for folks that don't know who you are and what you do, share who you are, what organization you're with, and if you had to pick one or two top issues that are facing your region of the country, what would they be? Okay. Uh, Michelle Richmond, Executive Director for Texas Competitive Power Advocates. So we're the trade group of generators and power marketers in the ERCOT region. Um, we've got 14 member companies with a little over 55,000 megawatts of dispatchable generation. Gosh, we have been dealing with market design. And I think unlike most of the other regions, we do not have a mandatory reliability standard. So our commission has been working with ERCOT and the IMM for the last really two years in, um, trying to determine what the reliability standard is. We expect that that will be uh, adopted sometime in 2024. And the other part to that is trying to figure out all of these components of market design that the legislature passed uh, and how they're going to fit together and and work with our market and the resource mix we have and, and the reliability standard that we are hopefully getting shortly. Sounds like no small basket of issues. Uh, with that, uh, Gavin Donahue from IPNI, if you'd be kind enough to walk us through who you are, what you do, and the top issues facing you in New York, that'd be great. Thanks, Todd. Um, I'm Gavin Donahue. I'm president and CEO of the Independent Power Producers of New York. We uh, represent the private generators in New York State. We've been around since 1986. We represent every source of fuels you can imagine in the marketplace. We employ about 13,000 people across New York State. And I think the daunting number is we pay about $1.7 billion in property taxes in New York State. We are facing a clean energy transition that is incredibly aggressive. And it's it's a real concern about the pace of, of play and how we're going to get to that. And I know we'll talk about that later. The integration of new resources on a grid that's pretty old in New York is a real issue here, which dovetails into the issue of reliability, particularly reliability in New York City. And there's no short uh, discussion on how do we deal with disadvantaged communities uh, in New York State. So um, a lot of things to consider. Proud to represent the market design and the companies that are privately generating, distributing power in the state. And uh, it's sort of a quick summary about what it is. Great. Thanks, Kevin. With that, then, Dan Dolan from NEPCA, you are next on my uh, my scoreboard here. So I'm going to have you walk us through the same set of questions. Yeah, great. So the New England Power Generators represents uh, nearly 95% of the electric generating capacity in the six states of New England. So within that, we've got every different fuel and technology, like so many of my, my friends here from across the country. 
And for us in New England, we, we really have the, the dual challenge of on the one hand, winter is always coming for us. So right now it's it's the early days, the lead into the, the winter, the first snowfall. And what are we going to do about energy security, fuel security, making sure that we're balancing the system in, in the most energy constrained period of the year. And then <coughs> secondly, continuing to drive forward on the other two legs of the stool driving energy and policy in the region being affordability and decarbonization. How do we ensure we create a financeable base both to drive the tens of billions of dollars of new clean energy that are going to be necessary to meet our electrified economic future while also supporting so many of the existing assets, both clean and conventional, that are going to continue to be needed to maintain that reliability and affordability component. Thanks, Dan. I can already see a common set of issues that are evolving. So we'll hear about some of those regional differences. But in the center square today, I've got Scott Miller with WPTF. So Scott, if you'd be kind enough to walk us through some of that same information, that'd be great. Sure. Um, Scott Miller, Western Power Trading Forum. We've been around, uh, begun by my illustrious predecessor, Gary Akron, back in the late 90s. What we've been dealing with, however, though, in my tenure is unique in that we didn't have an RTO outside of the ISO in California. And we've begun to see an organic trend towards market integration that will lead to something like an RTO. But this has been driven by something that I think we were the canary in the coal mine, uh, if you'll pardon the the, the misrepresentation of the pun, Um by um, having uh, so many renewables on the system so soon and retirement uh, earlier than I think any other part of the country of a lot of thermal assets, which led to the organic need for people to want to integrate into something similar to an RTO. We're now struggling with the fact that while in a region that is at the moment the most resource-constrained region in the country, but is is still rapidly uh, going through the energy transition, there's a desire to want to integrate, uh, but the fact that over 50% of the load is represented by public power that's not jurisdictional to FERC or the states, there are impediments to getting to uh, an RTO uh, as exists in most of the parts of the East. Um, nevertheless, it, it's interesting. There are very few people who are opposed to market integration. They're just sort of arguing about how to do it. And we're trying to do it while we've got uh, competing market platforms uh, that, uh, and we're trying to sort through those things. And so there's a lot going on between two market platforms that are trying to create a day ahead market. We just stood up a reliability organization in the Western Resource Adequacy Program. Um, but at the same time, California continues to march in its own direction. And yet it is the largest part of the West and, and the biggest consumer in the West. So we're, we've got all these competing elements uh, while we're still trying to stitch together an integrated market while doing the energy transition. Thanks, Scott. So with that, then uh, we'll stay in the West and ask Jan Smutney-Jones if he would be kind enough to walk us through what's going on in California in the West. Sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, I'm Jan Smutney-Jones. I'm the uh, CEO of the Independent Energy Producers, and we've been around since 1982. We're formed by uh, Dr. Jan Hammering, who uh, put us together to implement PURPA here in California. She later on also founded uh, NIEP, which is a precursor to uh, EFSA in 1987. So um, I've, I've been with uh, IEP since 1987 and uh, never got the memo to get another job. And uh, <laughs> so I've been uh, working on these energy issues for a long time in California. Uh, right now, um, there are several things we're up to. One, uh, Scott just touched on, and we'll go into greater depth later on on that, but the uh, issue of uh, sort of expanding into a more regional organization. Um, I'm former chair of a stakeholder board at the ISO, so I'm a little, um, uh, well, a little partisan on that issue, but we're uh, doing what we can there. Uh, but there's big issues with respect to, uh, California's been transitioning for a long time into a cleaner market, uh, and we reduce carbon emissions in the electric sector probably by half, but we represent a significant portion of the independently owned gas fleet, uh, along with uh, virtually every type of geo, uh, you know, geothermal biomass, 
solar, wind, and a lot of energy storage. So we're pretty busy out here uh, on issues uh, related to procurement, uh, as well as resource adequacy, which I think a uh, common theme here is given the transition and the rapid retirement of a lot of traditional generation, the, the resource adequacy market is very, very tight uh, in California and I think in the rest of the West. So this is a major issue and transition about how to address that issue. So uh, we plan on a very active 2024. Thanks, Jan. You've hit on, I think, one of the other issues that we're going to talk about as well. So last but certainly not least in uh, perhaps the largest market by volume, uh, Glenn Thomas. Thanks, Todd. Glenn Thomas, uh, president of the PJM Power Providers Group, or P3. Uh, P3 is a nonprofit organization dedicated to properly designed and well-functioning markets in the PJM footprint. Uh, combined, our members own about 85,000 megawatts of power. Uh, and like like all the other groups, you know, we have all forms of coal, uh, power, uh, gas, coal, nuclear, solar, wind, hydro, pump storage, batteries, uh, pretty much have it all in our group. You know, PJM has historically been an area that's had fairly robust reserve margins, uh, some of the lowest power prices in the country, and uh, has seen tremendous environmental progress, whether it's NOx, SOx, or carbon. Uh, we've seen, uh, particularly the last 15 years, tremendous improvements in all three of those areas. Uh, but like the other areas of the country, perhaps we're bringing up the rear on this one, but there's looming re reliability challenges in the PJM footprint. Uh, PJM came out with a study earlier this year that shows by the end of the decade, uh, reserve margins falling to levels that are unacceptable and will not sustain uh, reliability. So that's obviously becoming a concern. We're involved in a lot of different conversations right now in the PJM footprint focused on uh, making sure those days don't come. But uh, like the other areas, uh, this transition is uh, creating issues that are going to need to be addressed. Thanks, Glenn. I think that really helps round out a number of the common issues that I've heard uh, expressed by virtually everyone on the call. So before we get into some regional specific questions, I'd like to ask the group and and Glenn, I'll come back to you for the first bite at the apple and then we'll kind of go down the list from there. But in your view, as you see the situation in your region, what do you think power consumers can expect this winter and really looking a little farther ahead in the year ahead? And I'm thinking about uh, costs, about reliability, about clean energy development or new resource development. What's your view of the next, call it 12 to 24 months in your region? Uh, well, in the, in the next 12 to 24 months, at least as, as far as PJM is concerned, I, I feel like we're in pretty good shape. I mean, obviously, we were challenged last year with Winter Storm Elliott, where there was a lot of different factors that led to challenging circumstances. And you always have that possibility as it relates to these you know, energy systems. But um, there are enough megawatts on the system to meet the projected demand. And like I said, in the next 12 to 24 months, we should be okay. It's when you get out in that 27, 28 timeframe uh, that I think you start getting concerned in the PJM footprint. Uh, your question's about the short term. And the short term, I think, is focusing on operations. I think it's about getting some of these regulatory policies in place you know, so that we can see that next wave of investment that we know is going to be necessary uh, to, you know, see those investments in place by the end of this decade. Uh, so I think at least in, from, in terms of the short term, it's about operational excellence and getting some market rules in place, you know, so that we can fend off some of these looming reliability challenges. Thanks, Glenn. Dan, I know that there's work going on in the New England area as well. Maybe you want to weigh in on what you see over the next 12 to 24 months in New England. Yeah, the, the biggest thing we have right now is we see this wave of new resources that, that are coming, largely driven by offshore wind, huge integration of short-term batteries, things like that. And as we're supporting that new entry, what then is going to be the, the requirements around reliability? How do we support that, make sure that we're both properly valuing those new resources that do have reliability benefits? but then also matching it with the reliability requirements and needs of the, the rest of the system and what services they can provide. How do we do this on a more resource neutral basis without having to make individual mandates for X or Y resource type? Getting that right through accreditation that I know every market is now trying to, to figure out the best flavor of between 
resource adequacy requirements and capacity accreditation. That really is the heart, uh, I think, of this. It's probably past time that we take this sharper, more granular look. And that's the biggest issue we have, which then will bleed into our, our next one that, again, I know New England's not alone on, of what is the future of a capacity market? Um, how far in advance does it need to be? Do we need to be making it an annualized product? Should it be, again, more granular, more specific? These are all the questions that we've been wrestling with through 2023. And it feels like we're really just setting the stage for all the action in 2024. Great. So much to do next year. And Gavin, you're squeezed right in between Glenn and Dan, what what's what do you see for New York for the next 12 to 24 months? Are these are we going to have a reliable system? I think so. I think uh, like Glenn and like Dan, I think there's enough megawatts on a system in the Northeast to deliver the power that's going to be required. Um, the issue of uh, regional differences in New York, for example, the next 24 hours, there's supposed to be an excess of a foot of snow in Buffalo and it'll be 50 <laughs> degrees in Brooklyn. Yeah. So that issue never seems to go away. Um, but what is becoming more and more prevalent is folks do want a clean energy transition, um, but they also want it done cheaply. And costs are becoming more and more an issue here in New York. And I also think having new technologies that nobody knows what they are or if they're commercially available uh, are not going to be the cheapest thing that mm -hmm. folks are going to need to keep the lights on. So the issues around costs, infrastructure, regional differences, and the overall reliability of the system, um, I think is sound, but if we have a, an event nobody can, is thinking of, we could have problems uh, weather-wise. So Michelle, I'd like to come to you next because of course these folks are all in the East and have kind of similar markets. You're down in Texas, you're not FERC jurisdictional and you've got your own set of issues. And of course, as you described in your opening comments about a number of things that are on the table between now and 2025, it sounds like you've already got a lot on your plate for 2023 and really 2024. But what do you think about reliability, cost, energy expansion uh, as we look at how the system's going to function in the short uh, to medium term? So we've got a lot going on. We've got a uh a lot of uh, solar megawatts that are set to come on the system over the next year. We've got a huge amount of energy storage that's being integrated into the system. And at the same time, um, our voters passed an energy fund that the Public Utility Commission is going to be implementing and trying to dole out money for, for natural gas generation. So we expect to see quite a bit of activity. And I think one of the big questions here is, you know, what does this market look like? There has been a lot that has been passed by the legislature or, you know, ordered by the commission. Mm -hmm. And we're still in implementation mode. And you know, the market is like the the puzzle pieces all trying to fit together. And I don't think that anybody has a very clear picture right now of how those puzzle pieces fit together mm -hmm. and what it's going to look like and how, for example, the different types of ancillary services are going to interact with the energy market and all of these new resources that are, are being built or uh, will be built in the next several years. Um, so we're we're grappling with that at the same time that uh, we have had a huge demand growth in ERCOT over the past several years. I think demand is, has typically not been increasing in many of the other parts of the country. We've had a huge influx of companies as well as uh, new residents to the state over the last decade. And, you know, it has not slowed down. And we have we've been breaking demand records both summer and winter now for the past couple of years. And I think there's there's an expectation that we'll be able to reliably operate. I think that the margins are getting tighter and tighter. And our biggest concern right now is if there is some type of event in the winter time, we have a legislature that's coming back in January of 2025. And, you know, right now, the best thing that they could do for the market is to actually let the market implement everything that they have already passed and adjust to it. But I think there's a big fear that that regulatory and legislative uncertainty that we've been seeing over the past 
two years is just going to continue into the future, which will have a chilling effect on investment. Thanks, Michelle. That's uh, <laughs> not, not necessarily great, but it, probably a realistic view of where Texas sits. And you mentioned your influx of population. Jan, I'll go to you next because a lot of those folks have come from California uh, and have gone to Texas. But what are you seeing in California? Well, our plan right now is to send more people to Texas. So um, <laughs> at any rate, uh, we had a several incidents. California did a pretty good job of adding about 16,000 megawatts of relatively modern gas facilities between 2001 and 2015. Mm -hmm. uh, so we have a good base of uh, natural gas in California. We are summer peaking, uh, and actually this has moved into September which uh, has some impact on the amount of solar available. Yeah, we ran into a net peak issue uh, over the last couple of years, which we are addressing. This is a period of time when five o'clock during peak, solar is still providing a, you know, a, a portion of the uh, peaking needs. But as the sun goes down, yes, even in California, uh, the air conditioning stays on and you have to ramp something up. And that has been the gas leak. Yep. Uh, which uh, is about 27,000 megawatts. So what we, we, we end up with is reliability remains a big issue um, and it's heat driven. We've, uh, we did have outages in 2020. Uh, we had a near miss in uh, 2021 with a fire uh, along a transmission line in Oregon, which would have limited the resources of the Northwest. And we had a near miss in 2022 yep. when we depended upon a, an amber alert and diesel generators to keep the lights on. So kind of on an edge, there's been, you know, some uh, major issues that were addressed in the last year's legislature. Uh, we decided to keep open the Diablo Canyon yep. nuclear power plant, which is 2.2 uh, gigawatts, uh, as well as uh, putting 3,000 gigawatts of once-through cooling units, which were uh, ready to be retired uh, into a strategic reserve. The good news is we've added, uh, by the end of this year, we'll have about 8,000 megawatts of storage online. And recall, I just said we had uh, a 2020, we had rolling blackouts. We had 250 megawatts of storage online. Yep. And, uh, so things have been moving in that direction. I would say uh, one of our major uh, issues here are we've moved goals up fairly quickly. Our legislature has. We do not have the transmission to meet those goals in terms of the time. Uh, frame set. So that's a longer term issue uh, to say 2030, uh, but that's uh, a significant potential future problem. And then last but not least, because this is a big issue that's been popping up in our legislature, is cost. And without getting into the uh, intricacies of rate making, a significant amount of cost associated with electricity bills in California has nothing to do with the marginal cost of uh, power. It has to do with other so other programs as well as wildfires. Yep. And so hopefully we're stabilizing the wildfire issue, uh, but that will continue to be an issue and that will likely have an impact on uh, uh, within the next two years in terms of where we move and how quickly we move. Great. Thanks, Jan. Dan, do you want to add something? Yeah, I, I was just going to uh, highlight, I think, and this probably isn't a surprise when you you think about the the political map, but the amount of similarities from what my my good friend Smutney just pointed out about California and what we're seeing in New England, where this year we hit for the first time New England's all time peak demand day in September, not August or, or July, similar to California. A lot of that is the 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 solar growth, this net energy issue um, writ large. And then as we're looking into the future, I think the New England states like California are going to be deploying some of the electrification dollars coming out of the Inflation Reduction Act, the infrastructure bill, about as aggressively as anywhere else in the country. And so the expectation is we continue to see that that peak demand day shift further and further away from the heart of the summer and into the heart of the winter. Yep. And what that then means for how we design these markets overall, what is the, the profile of the resources and how we think about things on the more intraday seasonal issue as we're moving peak later into the day away from the solar uh, and the valleys created in the energy system. I, I think you're seeing the bookends of the system west and east uh, around some of this and then trying to sort it out in the spectrum through the middle of the country too. Yeah. Thanks, Dan. Scott, I'm going to come back to you and, and have you give me a little bit of the broader Western perspective on that issue of, you know, 
critical issues over the next 12 to 24 months or so. I mean, you, you really walk through a laundry list of pretty complicated stuff that's on the table, uh, trying to get stakeholders to agree to how and what the expansion of the market in the West might look like, which is no small feat in, on its own. And then we throw reliability, the cost issues that Dan and Jan both mentioned. Where do you see things in, in your part of the country on those issues, in addition to the other ones that we've been talking about? Well, it's interesting because um, we have uh, everything from the coastal, uh, what we'll call the coastal elites in California, Oregon, and uh, Washington, west of the mountains, uh, uh, to Wyoming, Idaho, Arizona, and, and everything in between. Um, yet everybody knows that they're short, and everybody, we, we could very well have a reliability event. Uh, even though California has, as Smutney's pointed out, added a lot of storage, has a pretty good uh, natural gas uh, uh, thermal capacity there because it's it's a region that still relies to a great extent on the three hydro basins, that being the lower Colorado, uh, the Pacific Northwest, and California's hydro regions. Uh, California, for a change, was an exporter of, of electricity this summer because it had so much robust hydro. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the, the, the fact is the climate is changing. Uh, you're having heat in places like Portland, Oregon at 115 degrees, which has changed the nature of demand. People are actually, nobody used to have central air conditioning in Seattle and Portland. They've got it now and they're not giving it up. Um, in the meantime, the growth is still happening in places like Arizona. Um, and so, and, and you have very uh, thin natural gas delivery lines coming in from the south through the desert uh, southwest, um, and then coming down from um, uh, Canada uh, into, into California. And if you have any disruption on those natural gas pipelines, um, as we've had in, uh, on the uh, pipelines into Southern California, you can have extreme events, even though you've got the resources uh, from a pricing perspective. And, and so we, it, it's a multi-resourced region that is, is highly decentralized. I like to joke that they make, they're so balkanized, they make the Balkans before, before World War I look like a super state. Um, but the and then you 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 put on top of that that we're we're going through this energy transition which we've all alluded to, and Dan you pointed out like how are we going to do this? We're we're not going to do a capacity market the way the people have in the in the east, but we do have to figure out when resources are in the in the energy market during peak days are near net zero uh, marginal costs but you still need some of these thermal assets to balance the system and keep the system up irrespective of the state of, 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 of storage. How are you going to compensate those, those things? And are you going to do it on the basis of dispatchability or some other metric? Um, and how can you do this in, in, in less of an, an administrative construct? So, We've got some challenges in the West. We hope that we'll get ourselves through it. We hope we'll have, you know, reasonably robust hydro year. Um, but, you know, as we go through these market design issues where we're finally getting around to sharing resources the way that RTOs have in the East, mm -hmm. we still have to figure out how we're going to manage the, the, the keeping the dispatchable resources around. And that's, that's, that's something we all share. Yeah, I'd agree with that, Scott. And a couple of you have mentioned it now. I, I hope it didn't go unnoticed that 27,000 megawatts of natural gas is still operating in California, which I think sometimes people maybe wouldn't appreciate that that's what the generation fleet looks like. So I only reiterate that to draw attention to the fact that we're on a path in a certain direction, but I don't think maybe we're as far along as some folks would have us believe. And so I think one of the issues that all of you have talked about, and I'm curious for your responses, the fundamental question is really, how do we deliver cost-effective, reliable power to meet a rising demand and still address today's emerging energy challenges? Or maybe said in the negative, what are the roadblocks or the paths forward for us to get there? I mean, Gavin, I think you mentioned it uh, in your opening comments or in the response to one of the prior questions about the difficulties that New York's going to have in in building and siting new infrastructure. Can you talk a little about that? I don't think it's unique to New York, but I do know that it's an issue that you deal with. Well, it's 
simply, and we have legislation that requires 70% of our electricity by 2030 to be renewables and by 2040, zero emissions. And our, for example, today in New York City, um, the system is run on oil and gas, over 70% of that electricity yeah. that's generated today. What is going to replace natural gas in 2040? Is it hydrogen? Is it carbon capture? Is it all the technology, all the technology, new nuclear? What are those technologies? And the state of New York um, is having a very difficult time grappling with what is going to ultimately replace natural gas. So for me, we haven't even identified the technology. We don't know if it's affordable and we don't know if it'll be available. So that's a big issue. And as part of that, something we didn't talk about here is how do you actually pay for it? And is it a price on carbon? Uh, how do you do that when in fact the carbon emissions primarily in New York are from transportation and buildings today, not from the electricity sector? So those are some huge challenges that folks don't want to talk about. And then as important to that stool is the issues of disadvantaged communities and environmental justice issues, mm -hmm. um, which are huge. So those three issues are really complicated. You can't just legislate something, not have any money to pay for it, and then not identify what's going to replace what we have. Gavin, yeah, do you think the legislature would take a second look and adjust their aspirational goals? Or do you think that the state is is wedded to that that objective and they're going to push and push and push until either they achieve it or it proves to be impossible? I believe that there'll be a relook at this in 2026. Okay. Um, but not until then. Okay. Um, there's 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 still let's let's keep going, let's keep moving. But the issue of cost just is always out there and it's not gonna go away. Yeah. Michelle, you're kind of on the other end of the spectrum in Texas. You know, how are you thinking about providing cost-effective, reliable power? I mean, you mentioned you've got a growing demand. I think it was the Wall Street Journal that said Texas's demand grew 25% in the last several years. I mean, that's an off-the-chart growth statistic. And other parts of the country are going to experience similar growth trajectories if we start to electrify the economy and electric vehicles, you know, move at the, the pace that some states and regions want to do that. So how's Texas thinking about these issues? And are you similarly situated on some issues to New York? Or is you Texas unique and dealing with it from a completely different perspective? To some extent, we're dealing with it from a different perspective in that our legislature feels that we already have enough renewables on the system. They are interested in more gas and more nuclear. Mm -hmm. There's been a lot of talk about small modular reactors. Uh, my understanding, though, is that that is many years away from being a reality. I don't know that the policymakers understand that as well as those in the industry. Uh, so um, I think, you know, based on what we've seen, you likely see brownfield development here primarily because, um, you know, they want it quickly. The mm -hmm. state is throwing money at it, um, which may make it more uh, economic than it currently is. I think the big challenge is they want to see more gas plants built but they don't have a market that is structured to value the reliability that gas plants provide. And so, um, you know, I, I think we're going to continue to see that challenge, um, you know, in terms of the infrastructure, most of our pipelines in Texas are interstate okay. pipelines um, as opposed to interstate, which comes with its own challenges and its own benefits as well. I mean, the benefit is that it's much easier to get a pipeline built mm -hmm. in Texas. Um, the challenge is that there is a very, you know, opaque system and within the market. And so in terms of the cost and the availability of the gas and quite candidly, you know, because our, our gas plants run so intermittently, I mean, they're really peaking plants more than baseload at this point. Um, you know, the ability to get uh, firm contracts is mm -hmm. is very much dependent on what part of the state you're in. So I think those are some of the challenges we face. We have an electorate and a policymaking bodies that want a high amount of reliability at very cheap prices and don't understand that those are are you know not possible. So 
we've seen costs increase uh, quite significantly over the last couple of years. And I would expect that they are going to continue to increase, particularly in um, in the competitive market where, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's all on the margin. Um, you know, there's a lot of discussion, too, about the changes that have been made and whether retail electric providers can pass that through to their their consumers. So uh, there's quite there are quite a few challenges. I, I mean, we've got quite a bit of of land. I don't think that's so much the problem like like you're hearing in New York and, and New England. And it's not that there's not a will to build dispatchable thermal resources. There very much is among policymakers here. But the reality, too, is that, you know, the investment community has been moving more towards uh, green power. And I think the willingness to invest in uh, in gas plants right now isn't what others would hope it would be. Boy, Michelle, you opened a whole can of worms there with that. That we'll we'll put that in the parking lot for a moment, and uh, we'll maybe come back to that if time allows. Glenn, you're you're kind of right in between New York and Texas in a general sense. How's PJM looking at some of these same issues? I mean, cost effective is in the eye of the beholder in many ways, but reliability is not subject to anything other than near 100%. And rising demand is coming, even places like PJM. How's PJM addressing this? you know, maybe even different than Texas or, or New York is? Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, you're absolutely right. Demand is going to be rising in PJM and pretty significantly co- compared to historical standards. I mean, if you look back at like the last 20 years of PJM history, you know, I think, you know, the ability to track merchant capital to the market as what has driven PJM's success story. And I think PJM has been a success in terms of, you know, reliability, affordability, and improvements on emissions. So um, the ability to attract that merchant capital is critical. And as you look at the market today, you don't see, you know, the merchant capital lining up like you did in the past. And that's evidenced by what you see in the queue, which is largely uh, resources that benefit from mostly federal subsidies, but to a certain extent, state subsidies. So, you know, the ability to invest in PJM without a subsidy um, needs to either be addressed or somehow reconciled because, like I said, what is what has made PJM the success uh, over the last couple of decades um, has been that ability that that doesn't appear to be there right now under the current market rules. That's why PJM is making changes to its market rules to attempt to address these issues. We've yeah. seen a pretty significant filing for PJM um, this fall. FERC is debating that right now. We think that'll be helpful. Uh, but we also think more definitely needs to be done to 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 set up an investment climate that's going to be conducive to attracting the capital that's going to be very much necessary. I mean, I think one of the other things that folks need to keep in mind, other regions of the country have benefited significantly from PJM's robust reserve margins. I mean, we've seen this time and time again where PJM is expe- exporting to other regions of this country. We saw it in Elliott and in Uri. Uh, where the fact that PJM was in a surplus situation really helped out other parts of the grid. Um, and that 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 benefit is, is going to go away under current projections. Uh, so not only are things going to get tighter in PJM, but the lack of the ability to export uh, is going to hurt other areas as well. So it, it has to be fixed. PJM's trying to get it, get it fixed, but um, I don't think this is something that gets fixed quickly. It's going to take probably a series of regulatory actions at FERC um, and operational decisions by PJM to get there. That that sounds really consistent, Glenn, with what uh, was said by Commissioner Clements when she made a, a point to say it's not as simple as maybe it used to be. You can't make one decision and it'll move all the levers. You're going to have to have a number of regulatory decisions that likely are going to be required in order to get us from here to there. Jan, well, the fact I, of the I matter I, is, oh, if I could just respond to that, I mean, the fact of the matter is we didn't get here just because of one regulatory decision right. either. It was a yep. series of regulatory decisions that got us in this spot, and it's going to take a series of regulatory decisions to get us out of that, that spot. Yep. Jan, it sounded like you wanted to chime in. Yeah, I, I think that uh, we're uh, uh, about time to have a national reckoning here in terms of what we're trying to accomplish. And, um, you know, the, the our industry sort of depends on uh, you know, reliability, affordability, and clean energy. That's the direction things are headed. Yep. And how you balance those three, and particularly in transition, uh, is a huge undertaking. 
Um, my state decided it wants to be 100% clean power by 2024, pardon me, 2045. Uh, but there was not a whole lot of analysis that went into that uh, th that uh, piece of legislation when it was developed. And I think, um, as I think that this conversation has, has put forward, this is very complex. Um, we are For sure. at a point, California has uh, done remarkable in terms of adding the amount of renewable energy we have. Uh, as I said, we put 8,000 megawatts uh, in addition to the, the renewable energy, 8,000 megawatts of storage online. Yep. And I'll remind you, storage is not a renewable resource. It is Tupperware. It stores electrons. You have to be able to charge it. Uh, and this becomes an issue uh, going forward. So that's pretty significant. We talked earlier about the gas fleet here in California. Uh, it's run less than it used to. It's at about 30% of the energy. Uh, now in California, it was around 42% at one point in time. Um, so it, it's still there and will be needed in the future. The question is, how do you keep it and the infrastructure around? And that obviously is uh, both an infrastructure issue as well as a market issue uh, in order to keep the lights on. Yep. And what can we do to clean up that existing fleet? But one of the things that I think is important in the industry is having a broader discussion uh, with policymakers and legislators that this industry has done a lot. We have uh, California went from 20, the electric sector from 23% of the carbon emissions down to 14% um, uh, in a, a relatively short period of time. Um, by comparison, transportation is 40%, and we're supposed to electrify that. So this is very complicated, and I think we really need to, on a national level, on a state level, have conversations about being good and trying to be, stop being perfect. Um, I think that there's a, a lot of uh, activity going on that's moving the dial in a very positive direction, but I think part of the problem is uh, we get into a legislative uh, situations where everybody's talking past each other and trying to keep the system reliable uh, and adding significant amounts of clean resources at the same time and keeping it affordable is really a huge undertaking that I think has been misunderstood by policymakers and uh, you know legislators both on a national and state level so i think one of the big challenges for our industry in the next year is to lay this forward in ways that you know just very direct um, we're we're good we can be good but we're not going to be perfect Dan, you got into some of the specifics on a, a moment ago on one of the questions that I asked you. I, I think that really kind of drives into maybe the next level down on how do we provide that reliable power or how do we do it cost effectively? Um, Look, if we're going to even approach hitting the what aren't goals, these are state laws yeah. on on what we're going to do in terms of the overall energy system, largely on the back of the electricity sector, largely driven through electrification, it's going to call for a doubling of electricity demand moving from a summer to a winter peak. And yet, I, I think we have a remarkable track record to stand upon. Uh, we have not had a single supply-driven outage in New England in over 25 years. That despite all of the attention that gets focused, particularly in the winter months. Mm -hmm. We have driven enormous efficiencies and highly competitive prices. And like other parts of the country, we've helped cut carbon emissions by more than in half through the power generation fleet in New England. So I, I think for all the challenges we rightfully are touching on and the focus and work that needs to happen, this is about as remarkable a time to be in this business as there ever has been, because we're also one of the few sectors of the economy that if we're talking about doubling electricity demand, we're in the business of selling more megawatt hours. Right. This is exactly where we want to be. We're, we're trying to drive that electrification push overall. And, and part of my message to so many here in New England is that in so doing and trying to enable that, the two biggest challenges we have are making sure that we can do it affordably and that we do do it reliably. Because if you can't charge your vehicle or you can't heat your home, 
through an electric heat pump, that's going to be the single largest impediment to not meeting our decarbonized uh, future and, and the economic goals we have. And yet, I, I, for as hard as it is to see, and, my, and trust me, my crystal balls is cracked and cloudy as anybody else's, I, I still think we're going to get there. I, I am extraordinarily optimistic of our ability to do hard things, maximize the infrastructure we have, operate within the siting and energy supply constraints as they exist, and continue to invest and build and 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 meet the needs of this region. Thanks, Dan. Uh, that's probably the most optimistic answer we've had so far, so I'll take that. So, Scott, uh, I'm, I want to close this round of questions with you about, you know, looking in a different environment than perhaps some of the others are, are dealing with, providing cost-effective, reliable power. You're building the proverbial airplane in flight, right? As you're looking at how to regionalize the West and do all of these things at the same time as you're trying to figure out what's the model, what does the stakeholder process look like? How do we build uh, a machine that'll work for the West? How do you think about all that? Because I, my head hurts when I think about it because there's you have more issues than some of the other folks do simply because you're trying to do more things at the same time. Oh, I'm glad we're not speaking personally that I've got more issues, but <laughs> especially, uh, yeah, we, we, I feel sometimes we do. And I, I sometimes, I think one time I gave Glenn some, some grief. I was like, when he was complaining about PJM, I was like, I love to have an RTO, a big regional RTO where we could share power easily. Um, but you're right. We're we're putting this thing together with vast political differences. But yet everybody knows they want it. Some people want it for reliability. Some people want it because it'll it'll integrate renewables uh, better. The secret sauce is it'll do both if you do it right. Mm -hmm. the, the difficulty and 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 you know when when I was listening to Jan and and Michelle and and others and, and talk about. We need to get everybody to have a national conversation about what we can do and what's reasonable. Um, we have to, the difficulty is is that it, 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 there's so much politics in, in this. I've got to deal with the politics of Wyoming and 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 Idaho and Arizona at the same time as California, Oregon, Washington, and then you've got purple states like Colorado. Everybody wants reliability. And I think in their heart of hearts, everybody wants, uh, you know, cleaner energy. And, and you're right, the electric, the power industry has done amazing things. Um, doing doing that, reminding people that these are not mutually exclusive goals, um, and but that it will, but but to do it in ways where you're 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 having as transparent and competitive a market as possible is the best way to get a investment. And B, get it as economically efficient as possible. We're just struggling with the fact that we're just trying to do this at the same time that we're we're trying to construct a market administrator at the same time. But the nice thing is everybody, at least when you talk to them, they do share the desire for it to be reliable and clean at the same time. And you, you've got to keep having those conversations without it getting lost in the broader political uh culture wars uh, that, you know, sometimes sort of, you know, where they they simple, overly simplify things, um, you know, uh, and so I, I echo Dan's message of it's a positive message and we, we probably need to spin it in a way like, listen, we're doing great stuff and we're going to do even more great stuff, but we've got to be honest with ourselves about what it is we're trying, uh, what we can accomplish and how soon we can. Um, and like I said, in the West, we'll do this while we're still trying to build the plane. So, Thanks, Scott. Well, I'm trying to keep an eye on our clock, and I have one more substantive question for each of you, and then uh, a quick rapid fire set of questions for the end. So, Scott, I'm just going to stay with you. you. You mentioned some of the issues, obviously, that you're you're dealing with, but, you know, there's policy goals, there's weather and economics and impact, either other issues that impact availability of resources. What's the mix that's available? You've got less coal drought challenges to hydropower, although, you know, depending on the year, they may be better, they may be worse, geothermal, and a push to rely less on natural gas. What's the state of play and how can the right balance be struck in your part of the country? Uh, keeping the momentum going. This is why, like, on the one hand, I want to have the conversation about how we compensate 
assets that we need to balance the system. Uh, but I, I want to keep pushing on the idea that we 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 share the resources uh, over the broad uh, region. Um, and this is this is particularly difficult. And, and Jan will uh, will will probably. Um, uh, scream a little bit when I say this. There are large parts of the West that really, really dislike California. But on the other hand, they've got to have California in whatever regional system they've got because that's where most of the population is. Right. So that's why keeping it uh, keeping it focused on the fact that big, broad regional markets are absolutely essential to anything we do, and and that's that's going to be the focus that we keep on while we begin to re-engage uh, stakeholders, even in states like California and Oregon and Washington, that reliability has still has, has to be met. Thanks, Scott. Jan, I'm going to stay with you in the West. California has seen the need to bring a number of their gas plants back or at least make sure that they don't go away. What lessons can the rest of the country draw from this? And is there a more optimal way to manage pace of change? Is California trying to teach us something in this instance? Yeah, I think there's a lot to be learned from that. Um, we are um, we are fortunate enough to have a gas fleet, as I said earlier, that's relatively modern and relatively clean. It basically uh, uh, retired out some of the older steamers here in California, as well as uh, basically displacing imported coal, uh, which at one point in time, California imported about almost 18% of its coal resources, uh, electricity resources from the rest of the West. Um, so, um, basically holding on <laughs> to assets you already have, uh, that can meet some of your reliability needs while recognizing that they're not going to run the way that they were intended to 15 yeah. or 20 years ago uh, is I think critical. Uh, I was just in Europe and they've learned the hard way, um, uh, based on, uh, you know, both, uh, well, based largely on the war in Ukraine, uh, that perhaps, uh, just fully retiring certain units uh, was not in their best interest. And I think nationally, we need to be keeping an eye on that. And everybody has raised the issue, okay, that's great, but what, you know, how do you keep those facilities um, in, in the market? What, what's the market structure for that? And yeah. I, we, we don't have a short answer to that. Uh, California is based on contracts and that, that's how we've done it. But I think one of the lessons learned is that one, as we transition the importance of um, don't tear down your house until you have a new one yeah. um, is important. And, um, and again, coming up with the mechanisms that, uh, you know, create uh, the incentive to keep those resources around. There's a lot of activity going on in my group with uh, carbon capture and hydrogen and all kinds of other issues that may be the longer term answer to that. Um, but uh, that's, that's a little premature to, to bank on that. So I think that's key. And then the one issue that, that's come up, and I think Dan kind of yeah, hit on it a little bit, but, um, you know, our, our peak has changed. Everybody's focused on the September peak. I'm focusing now on the, the, our winter peak, which is yeah. in December. That, last year, that was 19,000 megawatts between 4 o'clock and 7 o'clock in the afternoon. We don't have any resource that can do that other than the gas fleet right now. Um, and so, you know, these are significant challenges coming our way. So um, as long as we're doing this with our eyes wide open, I'm reasonably optimistic we'll work through all of this, but it's it's not going to be, um, you know, as, as clean and direct as we thought. And, you know, our industry out here, and, I, and I'll reiterate what Dan said, uh, you know, we built, uh, you know, some of the cleanest generation uh, in the world here in California based on, you know, markets. And, and uh, our members have done pretty well by that. So our goal actually is to, uh, you know, move this clean energy uh, 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 clean energy product forward, because uh, I think that's really where the future of our industry is going to be. Great. Michelle, the new gas loan program, good, bad, a model to follow, a terrible idea, or is it too early to tell? I think it's too early to tell, to be honest. I, I can tell you when it was working its way through the legislature, our members, with I think one exception, were opposed to mm -hmm. it because there was a concern about injecting essentially a state subsidy into the market. Um, now we have it. I expect to see companies taking advantage of it. Um, I think my hope at this point is that it's successful 
because I think that if there are not some meaningful megawatts that come out of that program, then we will be facing a fight to re-regulate our market. And, you know, that is certainly not what we would like to see. So, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm not going to borrow some of, of Jan's analogies because those have been great. <laughs> sure. So, um, you know, I think our challenge to to their point about old um, old units is our our gas fleet, for the most part, is very much an aging fleet. Yeah. And so we need to see some new resources come online. Um, I like the the analogy of not tearing down your house till your new one is built because we've been talking about trying to get a seamless transition. And it's my hope that that this loan program will assist in that because I, I have the distinction right now of representing the oldest uh, gas unit in the fleet as well as the newest. Mm-hmm. And the oldest gas unit in the fleet was built during the Eisenhower administration. Wow. So, and we still depend on it. Wow. Okay. That's perspective. All right, Gavin, next to California, New York probably has some of the most ambitious climate goals of all the RTOs nationwide. How is IPNI and how are you working with state officials to address the goals given reliability concerns that New York clearly is facing? Um, I have to say a lot of what Dan Dolan said earlier really is applicable here in New York. Uh, it's It's an exciting time because we're talking about a lot of new technologies and a lot of new innovation. So that that is our priority. Um, how you can pay for it is the other priority. We have the Inflation Reduction Act. A lot of money is going to come to New York for this. So um, I think people are excited about this clean energy transition. But as Jan said, you know, about the new house and Michelle, it's sort of, a, you know, analogous to don't quit your current job until you have a new job. <laughs> you know, so, so for me, um, we have an old system in New York. We have a lot of units in New York City that today are 60 years old. Um, I don't know. And they're needed for reliability. Yep. The state just came out with a rule last last week from the ISO actually saying that these peakers that are needed for reliability in New York City are going to be around at least two years longer than mm-hmm. folks had thought. So uh, for us, the pace of play is not keeping up with the pace of promises. Yep. And uh, New York is a very complicated place to do business. Um, we need to achieve the goals by 2040. 111 gigawatts of total generation capacity. We have to build our system out four to four and a half times larger than it is today. Um, And keep in mind, we've only put a little under 13 gigawatts of electricity on the system since 1999. Hmm. So if you think about that number and and the daunting goal that we're trying to get to, uh, there's going to be a lot of challenges ahead. And we need to be realistic with the public and folks about how to get there. Um, and it's a lot more complicated than just a press release. Yeah. Thanks, Gavin. Glenn, resource retirements and resource adequacy. Can 13 states in the District of Columbia actually collaborate to get to a workable outcome? Well, let me solve Gavin's problem first. A couple <laughs> gas pipelines from Pennsylvania could help Gavin out enormously. So uh, the, the solution is right laying right next door if you're interested. Um, you know, it's interesting as I hear both California and New York talk here, um, it seems like the pattern is set a goal, realize that you're going to be challenged to meet it, and then do some work around the edges to make sure you keep the lights on. Um, in PJM, you know, we have 13 states, as you said, in the District of Columbia. And what's happened here is, you know, we've seen states such as New Jersey, Maryland, and Illinois set pretty aggressive environmental goals. Uh, and they're they're able to do that largely because they can lean on states that are exporting uh, Pennsylvania, uh, West Virginia, to a certain extent, Virginia, um, maybe Ohio will start exporting soon as well. So I think those are kind of the interesting dynamics uh, that we see at play here. But I mean, I, I think um, it's hard to imagine huge political shifts um, within the region. Yep. Uh, but I think I think there is. There is a common ground on reliability. And the one thing I take a little bit of comfort in in now versus three years ago, reliability is now part of the conversation. A lot of times these uh, state laws were passed without reliability even being talked about. Um, Now, at least it's being talked about. Um, And many states are still moving ahead, as we just saw in Michigan, but at least reliability is on the table. And and also, 
importantly, affordability. And Willie Phillips said it on your podcast last episode pretty succinctly, Todd. You know, we can't do any of this transition if we're going to blow out the prices for the people who can least afford to pay it. So um, liability and affordability have to be part of the conversation. And I, I take take comfort that they're becoming increasingly part of the conversation in PJM, and hopefully that will lead to better policies going forward here at the state level. Great. Thanks, Glenn. And thanks for the uh, shout out that you've listened to our podcast. Always appreciate that. All right. We're going to work around the horn here for our rapid fire questions. And Glenn, I'm going to start with you since you were the last one with the mic in your proverbial hand. So I've got four or five uh, questions that I just want a quick one or two word answer from, and then we'll move on to the next. How much offshore wind will we have nationally by 2030? Nationally? Yeah. Oh, boy. <laughs> can I just do PJM? Sure, you can PJ, do PJM. PJM, we have goals over 20,000. I think uh, it'll probably be about a third of that. All right. What do you predict the rate of energy demand growth will be over the next five years in PJM? Uh, two to 3%. Will electric vehicles fundamentally alter grid balancing and demand? Not to the extent people think. Will competitive markets exist in 10 years? God, I hope so. And what's your favorite holiday movie? Christmas Story. All right. Gavin, will your region meet its goals on time? No. How much offshore wind will New York have by 2030? Under 1,000 megawatts. What do you think the uh, electric demand growth rate will be over the next five years in New York? I think it will be growing in New York City and will be depressed in upstate. Uh, will EVs fundamentally alter grid balance and demand? No. Will competitive markets exist in 10 years? Like Glenn, I hope so. What's your favorite holiday movie? Elf. Michelle Richmond, does Texas meet its goals and ensure system reliability? No. Uh, what do you predict the rate of energy demand growth will be in Texas over the next five years? Oh, over the next five years? Yeah. God. I think it'll be anywhere from 10 to 20%. Wow. Will EVs fundamentally alter grid balancing and demand in Texas? No. Will Texas have a competitive market in 10 years? God, I hope so. What's your favorite holiday movie? Love Actually. Oh, very nice. All right. Jan, will California meet its goals on time? Uh, no. Will California have any offshore wind by 2030? Maybe one gigawatt. What do you predict the rate of energy demand growth in California will be over the next five years? 3% per year. Will electric vehicles fundamentally alter grid balancing and demand? No. Will competitive markets exist in California in a decade? I'll be the only optimist, yes. What's your favorite <laughs> holiday movie? Wonderful Life. Very nice. All right, Scott Miller. I'm not sure that... Uh, the a region that doesn't exist yet has regional goals. So I'm going to skip that. And I'm going to ask you, what do you predict the rate of energy demand growth will be over the next five years in the West broadly? Uh, I'll say WEC will be between three and 5%. Will EVs fundamentally alter grid balancing and demand in the West? No. Will competitive markets exist in 10 years? Yes. Will the Western balancing authority be complete in the next five years? No. What's your favorite holiday movie? Die hard. <laughs> Excellent. All right. With that, I want to thank all of you for participating uh, in our first ever roundtable. I thought this was fascinating and hopefully gives people a real perspective about what's happening around the country. Dan Dolan had to step out of our interview early, but I caught up with him later to discuss the role carbon pricing might play in New England's energy future. And of course, to get Dan's rapid fire responses to my list of questions. So, Dan, on a regional perspective, carbon pricing has been a topic of conversation, and certainly NEPCA and EPSA, for that matter, have been uh, long advocating for the value and benefits of carbon pricing. Why do you think this is an optimal path forward for New England, and where do you think it stands uh, as with regards to viability as, an, as a policy tool? So, carbon pricing is pretty much the, the big elephant staring at us from across the room that scores of economists have have shown to be the most efficient way forward. But I also think there's the practical element of it, where for the last decade, New England has made really big bets on contracting or subsidizing individual projects. And we have virtually nothing to show for it. Uh, I am a believer that offshore wind is going to come in the long term in a big way in this region. 
But as of now, between offshore wind, onshore wind, solar, uh, Canadian hydro, not a whole lot has been built on the backs yeah. of these big individual programs. And so I think carbon pricing offers an obvious hedge of uh, uh, letting a thousand flowers bloom here, creating uh, a market-based signal so that a lot of different projects can try and get financed and developed. And there's also the fact that the the contracts as they are today don't value the yeah. uh, low or zero carbon aspect of the existing fleet. And there's one final, kind of much more near-term aspect, which is there's a reliability angle to this in New England, where right now we are relying on a tremendous amount of oil to get us mm. through those tight winter months. Yep. And absent a carbon price, that's the most economically efficient outcome. But by putting in place a meaningful price on carbon, we would both be limiting that economic viability of oil for truly the peak periods when we really need it right. and optimizing some of the more efficient units, which today are gas, but longer term, maybe batteries, maybe expanded hydro, maybe other things. Uh, it, it, it optimizes the dispatch within the existing fleet in a way that actually reinforces the reliability of some of the stored fuels that we have on the system. I think that's a great explanation. All right. So with that, Dan, I'm going to do the same with you that I did with uh, our other guests and ask you to answer some rapid fire questions, uh, answer in one or as few words as possible. Um, and I'll just start and work my way right down the list. Does New England meet its uh, emissions reductions goals on time? No. How much offshore wind will New England have by 2030? Think around 1600 megawatts. What do you predict the rate of energy demand growth will be in New England over the next five years? One to two percent on an annual basis. Will electric vehicles fundamentally alter grid balancing and demand? Yes, but not before 2030. Will competitive markets exist in 10 years? Absolutely. And what is your favorite holiday movie? Die Hard. You're the second person to say that. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Dan, for that. I appreciate it. And that gets us to the conclusion of our catch-up. For the record, my favorite holiday movie is Scrooged. Thanks for listening to this episode of Energy Solutions and for tuning in throughout the year. We hope as you close out 2023, you do so in a way that brings you meaning. And we'll be back in January to continue sharing insights from the voices shaping America's energy future. If you like this episode, please share it on social media or with your coworkers, friends, and family. You can also connect with us on X at EPSA News, on LinkedIn, and on threads at Electric Power Supply. And subscribe, follow, listen, leave a rating, or comment on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Pandora, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Energy Solutions is brought to you by the Electric Power Supply Association. EPSA represents America's competitive power suppliers, which bring about 150,000 megawatts of power generation resources to customers throughout the United States. Discover the power of competition at www.epsa.org.